It's our custom here every week to open the Bible together. And this semester we're in the book of Romans exploring this theme of streams of mercy never ceasing. Uh, Because in the first chapter of Romans we saw that Paul wanted to tell us that he has big news that he's not ashamed of about what it means to be right with God. Uh, about what it is, uh, what is meant by the righteousness of God. That there's a righteousness of God that has been revealed for us in the gospel. Um, and we talked about the first week that he said he's not ashamed of it. Well, if it's good news, why would you be ashamed of it? And I made the case last week that once you start reading in chapter 1, verse 18 and forward, you kind of start seeing why he's... Why you could be ashamed of it? Because he starts talking about how God's wrath is revealed. And like, wait, thought we were talking about good news. What are we talking about? Uh, he takes that a step further tonight. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of King David, First and Second Samuel. Uh, we actually spent all the last spring semester uh, looking at that. And one of the most popular stories in the King David story is how he royally, no pun intended, screws up uh, when he... What did he do? He slept with a married woman. Um, He got her pregnant. He had her husband killed and then took her as his wife to try to cover it all up. And he thinks um, he's gotten away with it all. But God, we're told, sends to him this prophet called Nathan. And Nathan comes to him. And kind of what you're expecting is that all of a sudden Nathan's going to come and be like, David, what did you do? That's not what Nathan does. If you know the story, Nathan doesn't do that. Nathan says, King, I need to tell you something. Uh, There's a rich man who owns flocks and flocks um, and herds and herds. And there's a poor man that only owns one little lamb. Well, this rich man had a traveler come to him. And the rich man didn't want to kill one of his own sheep to feed his guest. And so he took the lamb of the poor man and fed that to his guest. If you remember David's response, David's response is immediate and swift. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. You remember Nathan's response? David, you're the man. And David's immediate response is, I have sinned, right? It's a great story because it's David's own self-righteousness that ends up, he ends up condemning himself with his own self-righteousness. And that is kind of precisely an example of what Paul is going to do for us tonight here in Romans 2. Paul is going to point to our tendency to feel very strongly about what's wrong with everybody else while being completely blind to our own shortcomings. That's what he's going to talk about. In Romans 2. And last week, when we looked at the, the latter half of Romans 1, he kind of stated the obvious. He said the wrath of God or the judgment of God is revealed against the ungodly. Okay, like that just makes sense uh, on its face whether you're talking about the biblical God or not. The wrath of God is revealed against the ungodly. That makes sense. But here's what he says in verse 1. He turns around in verse 1 of chapter 2 and says, Therefore, though, you have no excuse either. What in the world does he mean? Here's a summary. There's a lot here in this chapter, and I wanted to read it all because I didn't want to skip any of it. And we can't go into every little thing that Paul says, but I want to read all of it so you get the big picture. But here's a summary statement of Romans 2. Stop judging you judgers because you're going to be judged too. Catch that? Stop judging 
you judgers, because you're going to be judged too. All right, let's read this together. This is God's word, Romans chapter 2. I'll try to read a little quickly since it's a longer passage tonight. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, who, who do such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man. But from God. Grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God will endure forever. There's a lot there. And Paul like... It's turn of phrase after turn of phrase. And I wish we could break it all down, but we can't. I want to give you the big picture. 
Paul's shift here in chapter 2 is toward any and all persons who listened to verses chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and thought to themselves, yeah, Paul, you are so right. You go get those ungodly people. Paul is looking at those people and saying, no, 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 no. Wait just a minute. Title of the sermon's Religulous. I had to give an explanation. There was a documentary uh, back in 2008 called Religulous by a guy named Bill Maher who hates religion, basically. And this is a quote from his documentary. He says, religion must die for mankind to live. Bill Maher thinks religion is ridiculous, thus religulous, okay? Here's Paul's little spin. This is what Paul's going to tell us here in Romans 2. We're going to have to die to our religion, If we're going to live. Little twist there, right? Follow the flow of the argument. Chapter 1, verse 17. There's a righteousness revealed of how to be right with God. Verses 1, chapter 1, 18 and following. There's a wrath revealed. There are people that are not right with God. And then chapter 2, not so fast. It's not just those people. It's also those of you who think you're you're a-okay. That's what Paul wants To ask, he wants to say, why do you think that you're right? Stop judging you judgers because you too will be judged. How does he do this? He goes after two different kinds of judgers. Let's just look at this as quickly as we can. Two types of judgers, you can break the chapter in half. The first type of judgers we can can look at in verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16, Paul is going after moralizing judgers, okay? He's talking about people who automatically think themselves better than the ungodly because they think, well, at least we know better. And Paul says, Paul wants to ask this, do you really? Wait a minute, do you really? He's addressing those who judge because they think themselves morally superior. And he exposes this false confidence in two ways. And here's the first one. The first thing he says, you see it there in verse 1. What he's saying there is you too are going to be judged because of your hypocrisy. Verse 1, you have no excuse because you do the same things. This is exactly what King David's problem was, right? King David was quick to respond and acknowledge what was right and wrong in the story that Nathan uh, gave him. But what he missed, what he was so quick to be blind to, was the glaring wrong and the abundant evidence that he was in the wrong in his own life. And Nathan has to say, no, 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 David, you're the man. It's exactly what Paul's doing here. Here it is. The inevitable result of moralism or moral superiority is hypocrisy. The inevitable result of moral superiority is hypocrisy. Why? Because what Paul wants to say is no one is morally superior. No one. Look, we get this. If you ask anybody on the street, you know, maybe, maybe you've been taught in evangelism like, To ask people if they believe in sin. Or maybe you just heard this. But you can ask people. I think you can ask anybody on the street. Are you perfect? And everybody's response will be. Nobody's perfect. Right? But I try or whatever. Right? We get this. No one is actually morally superior. Paul is saying simply. Because no one is perfect. Then no one is morally superior. The only way that you can be morally superior to anyone is by being perfect. And Paul's point is, no one fits that bill. No one. 
Again, we get this. I don't know if you've caught in, dove into it. I've been hearing a lot about it. And so a week and a half ago, I dove headfirst into making a murderer in, on Netflix. Have y'all seen this yet? You will get addicted. It's amazing. Um, dove headfirst into this documentary, 10 episodes, hour long each. This guy named Stephen Avery uh, was convicted in the 80s of rape. And he served 18 years in prison for that rape. And after 18 years... He was fully exonerated because of DNA evidence. He did not commit the rape. And there's a whole litany of police, prosecutor, and judge missteps that not only put him in prison, but kept him there for 18 years. And so you're going, man, that's pretty bad. And that's just the first episode. The second episode, or maybe it's the end of the first episode, um, after he got out of prison in 2003, just a couple of years later, all of a sudden, he gets arrested again, this time for murder. And what is his defense? He's being framed, right? And it makes so much sense. He was in jail for 18 years wrongly. He's being framed again. And so you're watching. There's this like morbid fascination as you're watching this episode. Every episode you're left at the end going, wait a minute, I think he really was framed. Like this is getting ridiculous. And it just keeps going and keeps going. And the worst one for me in the whole series is the self-righteous prosecutor, right? The prosecutor is the one that wants to build his case. And he's like building his case on the news and he has this like over-exaggerated narrative of what happened to this woman uh, that goes beyond what the actual evidence is and then in the last episode you find something out about that prosecutor he actually has to resign years later because he's been sexually harassing victims of domestic abuse that he was presiding over their cases and you go what a hypocrite, right? Like, of course, he, he framed him. You're just going crazy, and I want to pull what little hair I have left out. Um, and you watch. And this is the thing. You watch, and you can't believe, like, I want this murderer to be proved innocent. And you feel icky about it. But this is, this is why. Because we know police, prosecutor, prosecutors, and judges, right? We know they're just people. Meaning, they are just as messed up as any one of us. They, they very easily could have done wrong, right? We all know that we are all messed up in different ways. And when we judge because of moral superiority, Paul is saying that's hypocrisy. Because we know that we are no better than anyone else in our heart of hearts. He goes a little further here. And the second way he exposes moralizers is that they are judged by their own standards. Okay, this is what verses 12 through 16 about are, are about. I know it's kind of confusing as he goes back and forth. But this is what he's getting at at verses 12 through 16. He's saying it's not whether you have the law. And he's explicitly talking about the Torah from the Old Testament. The law that was given to Jews, right? To the Hebrew people. He's saying it's not whether you know or don't know or do or don't do exactly what the Bible says. What he's saying is we're all moral creatures. We all have some standard of right or wrong. It doesn't matter what your definition of morality is. We We all have some sense, some definition of right and wrong. And so uh, take, for example, this. You you may be someone or you may know someone that would say something like, I think people should be able to just do whatever they want. Right? It sounds very tolerant, very, very, I'm not superior than you, right? I think people should be able to do whatever they want. I, I don't think anyone is necessarily wrong. Well, if I responded to that person and said, well, no, I think, I think we should do what God says. What does that person have to tell me based on their belief? No, no, no. I think you're wrong, right? 
We all have some sense. We all have some standard. This is what he means when he says that they are a law unto themselves. We all have our own standard. And what Paul is saying is we can't even measure up to our own standards that we set for ourselves and set for other people. Francis Schaeffer had a really good illustration for this. He said, imagine at the end of all time, you're standing for God. And what you find out is that there's this file that has been building your whole life. And on this file is a recording of any and every time you ever began a sentence with you should or you ought. Right? And this is what God says to you. God says, look, I want to be fair. Okay? I want to be fair. This is what I'm going to do. You're only going to be judged by what's on your file. Get it? The standard that you set for other people. That's, that's, I'm going to be fair. I think all of us agree, would agree, that's pretty fair. I think we would all also agree, we'd all still be screwed. Right? We do not even measure up to our own standards. Okay? This is what, in sum, Paul is saying about the moralizing judges. He's showing that judgmental moral superiority is a zero-sum game. It gets you nowhere because no one is morally superior. Whether you have the law or not, no one. Moralizing judges. Okay, second half here, he goes after religious judges. Religious judges. Now look at verses, let's start in verse 17. Look at this. In verse 17, Paul wants to sharpen his knife. Okay, verses 1 through 16, moralizers could be anybody, any religion, any moral code. Anyone can be judgmental because we all have this tendency toward moral superiority, even though none of us are morally superior. All right. Verse 17 through 29, he wants to point out how specifically Jews do this. Okay, why Jews? This is a personal issue for Paul. Paul calls himself the Jew of Jews in Philippians 3, okay? This is a personal issue for him. And he wants to expose their judgmentalism in two ways. The first one, the same one as he did before. Hypocrisy. <laughs> you cannot measure up for the standard that you set. Look at verses 27, look, start in verse 17 and work through this with me. He says, okay, so you call yourself a Jew. Okay, you have the law. Okay, you have this special relationship with God. Okay, you know what's good and bad. Okay, you can see the light, so you can lead others to the light. Okay, you know the truth, so you can teach everybody what the deal is. This is what he's saying. Paul's saying, you think you have it all together because you possess the right things. You think because of these things, you are right with God. But now hone in on verses 21 through 24, these rhetorical questions. What's Paul's answer? Hypocrisy. Again. Okay, you teach, but do you teach yourself? Meaning sometimes you don't hold yourself accountable to the teaching that you teach. Okay, you say don't steal, but do you steal? You say don't commit adultery, but do you do that? Right? He brings it all full circle. He's saying that the Jews also, relying on the law, God's law, be it, But that's moralism. It's the same thing. An inevitable result of moralism is hypocrisy. Why? Because no one is morally superior. Follow the argument here. It's a personal issue for Paul. He's showing the Jews that they are no different than the moralizers because he's anticipating the question from the Jews. Okay, yeah, Paul, I get what you're saying. But surely you don't think we're the same as the Gentiles. Like, 
We're talking about God's law, like the law he gave at Mount Sinai, and he gave it to us. Like, we are Hebrew people. Like, this is our nation. God chose us. Surely you don't think we're just as the same as the moralizers. And what Paul is saying is, no, you're exactly the same. You're exactly the same because you rely on the law. You think that is what makes you right with God. It's no different. You think it's a means of salvation, a means to make you right with God, but it's actually just the opposite. He goes into this in the book of Galatians, Galatians 3.10. This is what Paul says. He says, for all who rely, same word that he uses here too, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. They lean on the law because they think it makes them right with God. But Paul says, no, it actually makes you cursed because it's cursed as everyone who doesn't do every single thing in the law. Just because you have it, it doesn't make you right. You have to do every single thing right. And maybe some of you, if you're paying attention, look at verse 13. I just have to point this out because it is kind of a confusing verse given where we're going. Verse 13, you're thinking, but is he not contradicting himself there? Because in 13, he says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It is true. If you are a doer of the law, you will be justified. But what is a doer of the law? One who does every single bit of it. And Paul's point is, no one can do that. No one. All right, we're talking about Jews, and so we're like, ah, Jews, I don't really get that. Maybe you are Jewish, and you kind of do get it. I don't know. Um, but for most of us, we're thinking, okay, I, I don't know how this applies to me. Well, Tim Keller makes a scary little uh, translation change. He substitutes the word Christian for Jew. Listen to how it kind of works out. So you call yourself a born-again Christian, and you know that you're right with God because of it. Why? Because you signed a commitment card or raised your hand or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle and you really meant it that time, right? You memorized the whole book of Philippians. You, you have all the right answers for all the doubters. You're discipling people one-on-one. You're even leading a Bible study, dot, dot, dot. We do the same thing. That's the point. This is, this is all Paul's trying to say here. What are you boasting in? What is it that you think makes you okay? I asked a question a couple weeks ago. If you believe in a God, do you presume yourself to be on the right side of him? And if the answer to that is yes, why? Paul here is saying, what are you boasting in? What are you relying on to make you right with God? And can it really do it? Right doctrine. Well, I mean, you know, I know I've got the right doctrine. We need right doctrine, but it doesn't make you right with God. I go to the right campus ministry. You are, no, I'm joking. Um, Doesn't make you right with God. Holiness in life. We are required, we are expected, we are commanded to live lives of holiness, but that does not make you right with God. Emotional experience, I feel the presence of God. 
that does not make you right with God. Right, beautiful, genuine worship. Amen, we need that. It doesn't make you right with God. What are you boasting in? What are you relying on? Second way he exposes his own brethren, the Jews. He says that you will, we are all going to be judged. Verses 25 through 29. This is the point he's making. We're all going to be judged no matter the externals. Get this. We're all going to be judged no matter the externals. It's kind of weird because all of a sudden Paul starts talking about circumcision, right? And if you're not Jewish, you don't really care. And if you're not a guy, you definitely don't care. And so you're like, why is he talking about circumcision? This is weird. But hear this. When he starts talking about circumcision, he is really driving the point home. He is really starting. If a Jew wasn't listening before, they are listening now. Why is that? This is a hot-button issue in the early church, okay? What was circumcision? Circumcision was the external sign that God gave Abraham as a sign and seal of his promise to him. This is back in Genesis chapter 17, okay? The promise that God gives Abraham that he would be his God and uh, Abraham and his descendants would be his people, right? The promise was for Abraham and it was for his descendants. So every male after Abraham, every male born into the descendants of Abraham gets the external sign. And so powerful, so meaningful was this sign. Here's the problem. It had kind of become like a lucky charm. We are the uncircumcised people of the world. I'm sorry, we're the circumcised people of the world. So we are right with God. We bear the external sign, so we are okay. And this is the point that Paul's trying to drive home in verse 29. Look at verse 29. But you see, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul is not some, and and this is what's amazing. Paul is not saying something new, but something actually that's a repeated teaching in the Old Testament. That circumcision was supposed to point to an inward reality. A circumcised heart. A heart that was faithful and obedient to God. And so this is the sum. And by bringing this up, Paul sums up the whole chapter. Here it is. The whole chapter is summed up in this way. Paul is saying, nothing on the outside can change what's inside. Therefore, you have no excuse, you who judge. Why? Because what is on the outside, your external behavior, conformity to the moral code, whatever moral code it may be, whether you're a Jew by birth, it doesn't matter. What's on the outside does not change, does not touch what's on the inside. It was only supposed to be a sign. Here's the thing. Y'all, that is exactly the lie that we have believed. We have believed the lie that if we just do enough out here, it'll finally work something in here. We have a yearly seasonal reminder of this. It's called New Year's resolutions. Whether you're a Christian or not, the principle applies. It's the reason why New Year's resolutions are kind of a joke, right? Because every year we make them, we go like a hundred people go to the gym at four o'clock when I'm trying, look, I'm, I got to lose weight. I have high cholesterol um, and everybody's in there and they're not going to be in there in February, right? 
We've believed this lie. And because we've believed this lie, we're judgmental, we're self-righteous, and we're condescending to people who don't measure up to us. Or, we hate ourselves. Because we keep telling ourselves, no matter how hard we try, we just fail. And we judge ourselves over and over and over again. We reduce Christianity. We reduce our faith. We reduce the gospel to external conformity. And when we do that, we blaspheme God. He says there in verse 24. We make God a liar when we try to do that. So here's the question. How do we escape this judgmentalism? How do we escape judgment? Because this is pretty dark. Because I thought I was kind of maybe safe when we read the verses last week. But now Paul is making it clear that there's no room for me. I screw up either way. Religious or irreligious. Where's the hope? And there's actually a subtle hint here. That's the final point that I close with. The judged judge. All this talk about judgment throughout this chapter, it makes us uneasy. It's hard, right? But look at verse 16. Verse 16, we are told that God will judge the secrets of men by or through Christ Jesus. In the Gospels, we said last week, Jesus talks about wrath more than any other figure in the Bible, right? Uh, Judgment more than any other figure in the Bible. Uh, John 5, Jesus says that God had entrusted all judgment to him. And throughout the Gospels, he repeatedly points to himself as a central figure on judgment day. And now I'm saying, okay, well, how is this supposed to make me feel better? I don't feel better yet. Here it is. Paul's going to get there. Stay with either read Romans for yourself or come back. But there's a hint here, and it's when he starts talking about circumcision. How in the world do I make that leap? Follow me. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, the promise between God and Abraham, okay? And in Genesis 17, God starts off by saying, you are going to walk before me and be blameless. And this is my covenant, and you're going to keep it, and you're going to be circumcised, and that is going to be the sign that you're keeping this covenant. So get it. You know, today, when you make a covenant or a contract, right, Um, You sign your name. So if you break that contract or you break that promise, your name holds you responsible. You put your name there. So you're held responsible. But back then, when two people would make a covenant, instead of like signing a piece of paper, they would actually usually like cut an animal in half. Really cool, right? Um, And what it was saying basically was, if one of us breaks the conditions of this covenant, may we be cut in half like this animal. Okay? Very... You didn't enter covenants lightly back then, okay? Genesis 17 then, circumcision, it's the same thing. It's a cutting away, right? A cutting off. And it's a sign of this covenant that if you break it, you deserve to be cut off. Here's the problem with the rest of the story of the rest of the Old Testament. You want to to sum up the Old Testament in one sentence? No one kept the covenant. That's the story of the Old Testament. No one kept the covenant. Not even great King David. Not even great 
King David. And so you read the story and you're left wondering, okay, well then who can know this God? Who can be right with this God if not even David can do it? The irreligious can't do it. The religious can't do it. Then who? We get a hint. Paul in Colossians 2. Listen to what he says. How can we know this God? Paul points to Jesus in Colossians 2 and says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh. How? By the circumcision of Christ. What in the world does that mean? It means that Jesus was cut off for the sake of his people. It means that Jesus was cut off so that we don't have to be even though we deserve to be. That rather than making us be cut off, God cut off his own son. Y'all, this changes everything. Get it. Jesus is the perfect and righteous judge who was judged so that we can stop judging. Jesus, the perfect and righteous judge, was judged so that we can stop judging. Still, you know, we come to a chapter like this and we think, all this talk of judgment, doesn't this just like make people vindictive, make them self-righteous? But here it is, it really doesn't. Because if you think about it, when I realized that I have faced the ultimate judge and survived, I finally realized I don't have to judge other people. How can I think of myself any better than anyone else? I don't have anything to protect anymore. I don't have anything to hide because he knows it all, yet he took the judgment in my place. So I can stop Judging and hating other people. I can stop holding grudges. I can stop holding it against people for not measuring up. Because I know I don't measure up. And I know that Jesus knew that I didn't measure up. Even more though, you got to hear this. I can stop judging and hating myself. I can stop telling myself every night when I go to bed and every morning when I wake up that I'm a failure. Because I know that I'm never going to measure up. But in Him, I do. And I can. And I will. Stop judging, (laughs) you judgers. Because you'll be judged. But there's a judge who was judged in your place so you can stop judging. Sound like Paul now, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we feel the weight of it. 
We feel the weight that there's right. We feel the weight that there's wrong. And we feel the weight that there's a whole lot of wrong going on inside of us. And we don't know what to do with it. So usually we either hold it against others or we continually hold it against ourselves. But you came out of nowhere, seemingly, by your grace and by your mercy. And you dealt with the judgment yourself. And you freed us from the bondage of judgmentalism, the bondage of superiority, the bondage of hypocrisy. You've set us free. We thank you for that and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.